Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the official Dungeons & Dragons podcast. This is Bart Carroll making the introductions along with Shelley Mazenoble and Trevor Kidd. In today's episode, Tom Olson and Susan Morris join us to discuss the subject of teaching and playing D&D with kids. But first, we'll speak with R&D's Chris Perkins, taking a look at the current state of the game and its continuing campaign storylines. Yeah, hi everybody. (laughs) (laughs) That was the best. Are we live? <laughs> well, it's not ever live. It's not ever live. If we were live, this, we would be screwed. <laughs> oh, sorry. What? What's going on? Hi, Chris. <laughs> Hi there. I'm back. <laughs> well, we're glad to have you, Chris. Can you do a gnome voice? That would be perfect. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> he, to be fair, he does practice his voices quite a lot. I do. You should talk to him about that. Let's talk about your building. voices. Why? Because you sound like, oh, you sound like my two-year-old now. Let's go for a walk. He didn't come prepared to talk about the voices. Uh, So that sounded bad, actually. You have to, oh, the voices. The voices. The voices. I can't get them out of my head. Chris Perkins, thank you very much for being a guest on our podcast. Thank you. We know you're very busy. Are you? It's a warm, sunny summer day. And we have air conditioning. Here we do. Yes. Is there air conditioning in your new house? Nope. Houses don't have air conditioning no, in Seattle. No, not in Seattle. Yeah, we don't understand. Seattle that. isn't built for 90-degree weather. No. But we brought you here because we want to talk about stories and campaigns. Woo! We have this new thing. Stories! You may have heard about. Campaigns! Rage of Demons, which is a story. A story. Yes, Rage of Demons a is a story. And you have a new title as per Trevor Kid. Story Man. Story Man. That's his actual job description along with what the What is your the actual title? Story Design Manager. Oh, doesn't that but sound story man awesome? sounds better. What if you could go back in time and tell the 13-year-old Chris Perkins that that would be his title one day? D&D. I forgot what you said. Story, story? designer. Yeah, he'd say, right? Oh. <laughs> He's like, of course. No. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I'm on a trajectory. So there's an old Order of the Stick cartoon where they're making fun of all the uses of the word level in Dungeons and Dragons. There's a level of a spell, there's a level of a dungeon, there's a level of this or that. And it seems like sometimes we use campaign in a similarly um, multiplicitous way for D&D. Nice word. (laughs) Where you've got your campaign at home, but in the past, and I'm looking at the, the brand people sitting around the table as well, we've talked about marketing campaigns. Yes, it causes so, no end of confusion around here to use the word campaign. Because yeah. are you referring to a D&D campaign like DMs call them, or are you referring to the marketing campaign? So, so we don't use that word. We're, so right now we're in the Elemental Evil storyline? Correct. <laughs> so, or sometimes I refer to it as the story season. Well, there you oh. go. You with your, your TV analogies over here. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm deeply, profoundly affected by serialized television shows. Me too. I was going to ask about some of those, because uh, we all, I think we all are. But, uh, so currently we're in the Elemental Evil storyline, and then we'll be moving into Rage of Demons later on, uh, late summer, early fall. So what defines a D&D storyline for the player at home? If you go to the website... It says Elemental Evil Now. It's going to say Rage of Demons. You're going to have some cool art. You're going to have some cool iconography. But w- what does that mean for me? So the storyline is kind of like uh, the arc of a season of a television show. It's, it's a story. It's a story. And as such, it has a central conflict around which 
heroes and villains orbit. And what makes our stories interesting and unique is that they are told cross-platform, mm -hmm. cross-media, that you might interact with the elemental evil story in one or more of several ways, uh, through the TRPG, through a digital game, through a board game, uh, or through some other medium. And Rage of Demons is similar. You'll be able to make contact with the story to involve yourself in the story in multiple ways, including through novels. Um, two novels in particular bookend the story. Uh, now, uh, each story we aim to create is designed to feel very different from the one that comes before it and the one that comes after it, so that, uh, you so that it's a nice change of pace, um, it's a surprise, and you never get bored. Well, I never get bored. <laughs> I know you never get bored. So when we're making these multiple stories, right? They're they're big stories. So yeah, we're talking about big stories and big things happen in, within them. Yeah, because we had we had uh, uh, Tyranny of Dragons. Right. Yeah, and then we've moved into which was a great story to launch Fifth Edition because it focused on dragons. Yeah, you can't like Dungeons and Dragons. Starting with dragons sure. is not going to be a bad thing. Uh, not just starting with dragons, starting with Tiamat. This is true. Yeah, going to be. And then we went to the nostalgia dragons. well for Elemental Evil. Mm -hmm. um, also telling that, basically telling a version of the classic elemental evil story within the Forgotten Realms milieu. <laughs> oh, more, more fun words. Word. <laughs> we're just like, we're just gonna be Sesame Street over here. Today's word yeah. is yes. milieu. Um, so, and now we have Rage of Demons after that. Right, yes. So when you're making these big stories, is the intention that they're connected in some way? Do you, when you're telling these stories down, down in the pit, I'm gonna call you guys the pit right now, uh, <laughs> and and you're going from one to the next. Do you find ways to connect them, or is that more something we're leaving to the players? A uh, little from column A, a little from column B. We do have connections. Uh, people might not necessarily pick up on all of them, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. As we get further into our storytelling, uh, we will have more pronounced connections, and you'll start to see events that happened in the early stories, uh, kind of coming back to haunt the later stories. Gotcha. Right now, we're kind of planting a lot of seeds. It's kind of like uh, we've just filled a new sandbox full of sand, and we're starting to put toys in there for people to play with. So dragons, and then the elemental evil cultists, and the uh, princes of elemental evil. And with Rage of Demons, we've got demons, demon lords, and the Underdark to so play with. One of the challenges I'd imagine, uh, because I'm trying to wrap my head around it, is as the different stories uh, come and go, what thought do you give to sort of level setting them? I imagine people are gonna be in continuous campaigns. They'll be hitting different stories at, at, in different years. They're probably not gonna be restarting at level one be just because it's a new story. So how do you approach, hey, we need to develop the storyline material that is gonna be uh, important and, and influential across a variety of levels where, where multiple campaigns are going to be playing? Uh, well, we only worry about character level, particularly when it comes to the TRPG. Mm -hmm. um, we know that, like, in a typical story, there are going to be expressions for which level of the adventure doesn't matter. But within the TRPG, um, we just look at the... It all starts with the story. What is the story we want to tell? What is the conflict? If the nature of that conflict is such that the villains you're fighting are particularly powerful, um, then we have to tailor the adventure to that. Now, in the case of Rage of Demons, we're dealing with a lot of powerful <laughs> villains. Yes. 
I mean, we didn't want to tell the story with just one demon lord. We want, kind of wanted to tell the story of them all. And so we just kind of threw them all in and said, can we do this? Can we make this work? It's a huge challenge in a TRPG adventure to have the characters staring down multiple demon lords, particularly multiple demon lords at once. Um, and they're not 20th level characters, so how do you do that? Right. Mm -hmm. And so the challenge then becomes what, what devices or mechanisms or narrative tools do you put in the story that give the characters who might not be able to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Demon Lords a chance of actually defeating them mm -hmm. um, without it feeling overly contrived, without it feeling like the Demon Lords are just a bunch of p***s. Um, that's part of the challenge of the story. Um, for Rage of Demons particularly, the TRPG adventure, which is called Out of the Abyss, is for levels 1 to 15. Um, not every uh, TRPG adventure that we tie to a story will be. Um, but in this case, we wanted to start with the characters um, kind of feeling out the underdark uh, and building up to the threat. And you might meet a demon lord when you're still third level. Sheesh. What does that mean? What do you do? How do you respond? How does, you know, where does the scenario go from there? Um, but you do, that's, it happens. Pledge to them immediately. Yeah. Possibly. And pray that they I leave pee, you alone. Pee myself yeah. as a free action <laughs> and then <laughs> run. There's all <laughs> kinds of uh, story possibilities when you throw the characters into a situation that you, they can't win by force. There are also interesting possibilities when the characters actually have to form alliances uh, in order to help them achieve their goals. That is possibly a, a, a dungeon master question I would have. In your, your many, many years <laughs> as a dungeon master, writing the column, uh, obviously working for the Acquisitions Inc. game and then running many, many home campaigns, how do you approach the player philosophy that comes up sometimes that if there's a challenge on the table, it's meant for us to overcome it? Okay, so um, if this were first edition, nobody would care. You would just die and make up a new character. Um, and uh, fifth edition has embraced all of the previous editions insofar as uh, we do, we are mindful of what a balanced encounter is, but we are also mindful of the fact that some of the best stories that will come out of your campaign are stories uh, of unfairness, <laughs> uh, of the horrible mismatch, of, of not realizing you're in over your head. Um, it says right in the Dungeon Master's Guide, hey, DMs, you don't have to throw soft pitches all the time. And not every encounter should be one that the characters can just beat their way through. And um, it may be that other editions have trained some players to think that everything that we face in this adventure is going to be a fair and balanced encounter for our party. Mm -hmm. um, that is not the philosophy that we've embraced going forward, and it's not the philosophy that was true in the earliest editions of the game. Wow. <laughs> and so, wow. so players beware, is I guess what I'm saying. <laughs> but there are, as you were talking about earlier, there are mechanisms for yes. like, you bump into a demon lord. Yes. And it's like, you will have options. It's not yes. just like, oh look, and, we just slaughter everybody who comes tell, in here. And we will tell the DMs who are running the adventures uh, that they have options as well. And that. I can only assume from your own home campaigns that you have had experience not throwing gimme softball pitches, but throwing the fastball just to see 
Will they figure out that they can't hit this, or yeah. what else will they do? He killed yeah. our entire party in one round. Absolutely. Is Did that he really? True? Oh yeah. <laughs> to be fair, again, this is, we're, 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 talk, we're talking about we're talking about things that, that Chris did. We also had an item that let us rewind time. So yeah, we they're never it. gonna get that again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a one-time use thing. It was good times. That's a good. Yeah. Item. Uh, yeah. So the um, one of the cool things about the Rage of Demons uh, setting is that you do have these super-powered threats. But like the Alice in Wonderland stories, characters are going to meet all kinds of madcap characters are going to help guide them mm -hmm. uh, through this whimsical, wondrous, terrifying, and deadly domain that they find themselves in. Uh, so they're not just out there on their own. And they have to realize, hey, it's the Underdark. Everything is out to get us. So for Dungeon Masters awesome. that enjoy creating you know, sort of their own campaigns and their own stories, how would the Rage of Demons sort of fit into that? I mean, are there mechanisms for you can take some, part, all? How, how does it work if you're a dungeon master that likes to be creative to, to uh, handle uh, storyline material that we're presenting? We've been, as the stories have been evolving, we've been paying more attention to the idea that uh, you can take elements of our story and kind of run with it in your own campaign. Uh, it got a little bit easier. It was a little more easier to do with Elemental Evil than it was with Tyranny of Dragons, and it's more easy to, easier to do with Rage of Demons than it was with Elemental Evil. One of the good things about the setting in this case is it's eminently importable, uh, that the, a lot of worlds have their own underdarks. It's very easy to take sections of this adventure out and use them um, in isolation. Um, for instance, there's a Duragar city that you can explore. There's a, there's a deep gnome settlement. There are discrete cave complexes that can be broken off and used individually. Huh. Uh, and other locations throughout Rage of Demons story that could stand alone. If you don't want all the demon lords in your setting, there is an interesting way to use one or more of them. Mm. Talking about telling these multiple stories, earlier you mentioned you know, that it's cross-platform. Our stories yeah. were developing across platform. So for Rage of Demons, we've got uh, the tabletop, We've got uh, Sword Coast Legends, which will have yep. some Rage of stuff. We have Neverwinter. Yep. We have the novels. Yep. Am I forgetting anything? We have awesome minis coming out. Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> With so, kids and Gale Force 9. So when you're developing the story, right, you have all this in mind. Uh, yeah. Uh, do the stories, like, diverge? Are they, are they telling, they're all telling the same basic story, but are some of them, is the plan that some of them tell different stories? Yeah, or different facets of the story. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, and give you a little bit of insight into what happens when we decide what happens after we've decided what story we're going to do? Uh -huh. My team, the story team, is then tasked with sitting down, um, codifying the story in the form of what we call a story Bible. And a story Bible is a living document that combines text and concept art, all tied to the story. And what it tries to do is encapsulate the story and all of its discrete elements so that when one of our partners picks this up, the Bible serves as an inspirational guide for them. It tells them what the story is, who the main players are, and sort of all of the cool toys that they can play with in the story. Mm -hmm. But what parts of the story they choose to focus on, what facets they use, what characters they pick up, is then entirely up to them. Mm -hmm. So in Sword Coast Legends, the, the demon story that you interact with isn't the same story that you get in the adventure out of the abyss because 
the Sword Coast Legends designers glommed onto a part of the story Bible and kind of ran with it. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas uh, Green Ronin, um, who uh, led the design of the adventure, uh, they glommed onto other parts of the story Bible and kind of ran off in a slightly different direction. And Bob Salvatore, who consulted with us on the Rage of Demons story, he glommed onto different parts for his novel and is telling a different facet of the Rage of Demons story. But they all have to do with the fundamental idea that demons have invaded the Underdark. Beyond that, they kind of go off in different directions. But there still has to be some, it's like somebody has to oversee everything to make sure that like what's happening in Bob's novel isn't contradicting right. what's happening yes. in the TRPG, yeah. which isn't contradicting something that's exactly. happening in Sword Coast Legends. And that's one of my jobs as the story designer. So as manager. things are coming in, as outlines for novels are coming in, or as the, yeah. however, what's the, yeah. the first step of a TRPG adventure, whatever that looks like, you're going through it all and mm-hmm. making yeah. sure. And I'm not the only one. There are other people who look for continuity mm-hmm. issues as well. Pretty much everybody on the R&D team becomes familiar with the story and then can... Uh, make sure that other expressions are kind of in line with it. Because as you're telling these new stories, you're also taking into account the 40-plus years of history because there is a lot of existing yeah, canon that right. you're probably And there are things that they that, that our, our partners to. and, and uh, creators don't know, like where we're going in the future, yep. um, opportunities to tie into future stories. They might not know what we have planned for 2020, but I do. So, I do too now. And so yesterday. I can, I can, uh, <laughs> I can bring some of that knowledge to them and say, "Hey, in your game at this point, there's this character. If you change it to this other character, or if you say this certain thing, you will there, you will be planting an Easter egg or a seed for something mm-hmm. that's going to happen later on." Mm-hmm. Um, we also look for opportunities to tie in things from the past, like for instance, uh, cryptic at Neverwinter. They like to reuse some of their old assets periodically. So if they created something for the Elemental Evil season or for the Tyranny of Dragon season, we can help them work some of that material back into Rage of Demons so that they're optimizing their assets. I know I'm stating the obvious and I'm holding the novels aside from this, but it seems like an interesting storytelling exercise where you're telling a story with the setting and the antagonists and the conflicts, but there's no protagonists that you might necessarily have in mind at the onset because that's where the players fit in. Right. Does that yeah. <laughs> Certainly in a TRPG, you don't, the protagonists who are, are the adventurers playing the adventure and they're made up by the people playing the adventure. Mm-hmm. We don't have, I don't have any say over what characters go through that adventure and who lives and who dies. Um, <laughs> but Bob Salvatore, for instance, when he's telling his, uh, when he's writing his novels and telling parts of the Rage of Demons story, he has got actual protagonists. And so when we are breaking the story, we look at the story two ways. One, without anybody. And two, who will be our, for lack of a better term, novel protagonist or our marketing protagonist. Mm -hmm. If we do a marketing video to promote a story, we will sometimes want to adopt the point of view of a protagonist, a heroic character, and we decide when we first break the story, who that character or those characters will be in uh, Rage of Demons because um, uh, we have a Bob Salvatore novel, a Dritz novel that's basically kicking off the season. 
it made sense to include Dritz as one of our point of view characters, particularly, for instance, in our marketing video for the season. Mm -hmm. He has a prominent role, understandably so, because this is his domain that we're telling the story in. The video's really cool. That's all I'm gonna say about the video right now. <laughs> It, it seems like a challenge. It also seems like a, a pretty good advantage compared to maybe some other entertainment properties where if you're playing in the yeah. Star Wars universe, right. well, you know that there are protagonists and they've yes. already driven right. the story or Lord of the yeah. Rings. You right. kind of know what's happening. But if you're, running a, if you're running the Rage of Demons D&D adventure, you know, don't expect Dritz to show up and just kill everything for you. No. That's, yeah. not, the way, that's not the way a good D&D adventure plays out. That's, your, that's your job. He'll help me out, right? He'll, he yeah. owes me a song. He, he will do that. Yeah. I'm going to call it Bob right now. <laughs> Or I don't have to do anything because I know yeah. he's doing this on the back end. Right. It, it just so for, for purposes of the Rage of Demons story, Dritz is kind of like an attachable, detachable element. Mm -hmm. uh, it just depends on what medium you're experiencing. Yeah, he could show up in a video game, absolutely. Um, less likely he's going to be in your party when you're going through the, R the RPG adventure. Yeah, and like for the, we're talking about this, there are several demon lords. You're probably not going to have time to deal with them all. It's it's conceivable that Driss is out there doing something else while you're while you're trying to take care of all of these yeah. other problems. And the other thing too is, you know, let's say for instance in um, one of Bob's novels, Driss is fighting one of the demon lords, uh, and kills him, for instance, or sends him back to the abyss, or mm -hmm. whatever happens. That doesn't mean that the TRPG adventure has to play that scenario out or assume that that outcome is true in that medium because a TRPG adventure is ultimately going to be transported to a DM's home campaign. Even if it's a realms campaign, it's still the DM's version of the realms. DMs change even published settings for their own needs. So what happens in your home campaign and what happens in Bob's novels or happens in Sword Coast Legends, those don't have to be in alignment. That's okay. Now for our purposes internally, we have to have some kind of default outcome or have some mechanism by which we know how things are going to, shall we say, wrap up or not wrap up, what loose ends will still be there. Will all the demon lords be sent back at the end of the story or will some of them be sent back at the end of the story? Will none of them be sent back at the end of the story? We kind of have to know this because we kind of need to know what's in the Underdark going forward for our purposes. But again, could be completely different in someone's home campaign. It's a good question because we, we we do get you know talks about what's canon and what's not canon as we moved through the editions and as we got where we are now and we're in the Forgotten Realms. Um, is there? Do you think that there will ever be a source where we'll be like, hey, here's what happened in our head canon of Rage of Demons, like where we describe people, like not Rage of Demons, like here's what happened with uh, uh, Tyranny of Dragons and like because I think I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, it's been a while, but in ours, Tiamat was prevented from from coming out completely. Right, yes. Right. Um, we do have internal documents that talk about outcomes mm -hmm. of stories. For instance, um, in one of the story, we haven't said anything about whether or not Tiamat was officially banished from the realms or not. Um, but we will when we have to. Gotcha. Because we have a story coming up that basically... Um, has thematic ties into the Tyranny of Dragon story. It's, things happen in the Tyranny of Dragon story that have repercussions and consequences that kind of manifest in this later story. And we come out and say what happened mm -hmm. at the, 
for purposes of official canon, we have to know where Tiamat is yeah. and account for her in this future story. Do you think it's something we'll ever share with, since we are going to have to say this for that campaign, do you think there's ever going to be like some kind of document or page where we were like, here's how, what's happening in the Wizards of the Coast version of, of the world, if you guys want to keep track? Um, it's important in some media, media to know that. It's important for novelists mm -hmm. to know. Um, but we wouldn't give it out publicly unless we felt there was an actual need for it. Yeah, because we're not trying to force people to play right. a certain way. Yeah, That's we don't we don't to. we don't want to tell you how to run your campaign for instance. Um Tiamat at the end of if you run Tyranny of Dragons in your home campaign and Tiamat is in charge of the whole world and all, you know, all the dragons have basically taken over all the settlements, that is a cool story. Yeah. Um and that's great, and we don't want to mess with that. Have we collected that mechanism? I'm wondering, or have we uh, collected that feedback? If we have the mechanism for, yeah, for campaign results that we've we've collected from, uh, we did it a little bit right when we did uh, uh, the Baldur's Gate. So we started with the with the uh, Baldur's Gate mm -hmm. encounters adventures that we did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and there was some cool stuff that we could do, but it becomes difficult when you're trying to influence. The whole world by what people do at their tabletop because they can go wherever they want, mm -hmm. like because the DM can take the adventure wherever they want. Oh, not not to implement, just sort of to collect and collate, like just for did, you know shits and giggles. Like, right, Tiamat died, and you know sixteen percent of the <laughs> games that were run, <laughs> she was right. murdered the murdered the heroes in seventy nine percent of the games that yeah. were run. She was turned yeah. from her evil ways and became good in two percent. <laughs> we do have some stats like that, but I'd love to get more of that kind of thing because we can actually use that. Let's say, for instance, that uh, in Rage of Demons story, um, just picking a demon lord at random, Zugget Moy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she loves Zuggy. She's my favorite. I love her. Love that, let's say, uh, let's say Zuggy um, gets uh, sent back to the abyss in 90% of the games. Then I'm happy as the story manager saying, you know, that's the way it is. This is the prevailing yeah. outcome. This is the prevailing yeah. outcome, and we're going to go with that. We're going to use that in our future stories that might touch on this. It, whereas if, if, if we discover at the end of the Rage of Demons adventure or campaign that fewer than 50% of the parties ended up sending Zagatmoy back, then we can just say she's down there, and she's down there still. She's and by the way, if she's she stays down in the, in the Underdark, that place is going to be a mess. It's going <laughs> to be awesome. Her, her plot... In the Underdark is so twisted and so messed up. It's a beautiful thing. Pretty much wherever she ends up is going to be a mess. Yeah. In a good way. Yeah. I did love how all the demon lords have this weird, twisted view of everything that's affecting the world around them. Like it's just. Yeah. We have this, we have this cool this thing. Thank you, whoever in the past did this. But uh, one of the cool things we discovered when we were breaking the. Rage of Demon story was that there is this ambient magical radiation in the Underdark called Phaserus. And it's never been so codified that, uh, to, like, it's like just this wonder thing that you can do anything with. Like, the, the Phaserus can alter magic in ways no one can predict. It's like your little time machine that Chris gave exactly. you in your sure. campaign. Yeah, it's this, it's this wonderful it's storytelling. It's a storytelling mechanism, basically. <laughs> And uh, when we realized how open-ended it was and how kind of under, deliberately underdeveloped it had been over the years, we decided we were going to use that as a major plot device. It's, the, it, it's what allows this horrible spell that goes awry to bring the demon lords in the first place, but it's also the thing that allows their madness to just spread throughout the Underdark. 
this becomes a conduit for the demon lord's madness. And so, as Trevor said, a great deal of effort was gone into exploring how the different demon lords' madness is expressed, both in their actions and in the minds of the people that they infect. What happens to somebody who's infected with Demogorgon's madness versus somebody who's infected with Zuggetmoy's madness? Can you be infected with more than one madness? Or do they cancel each other out? They don't cancel each other out. Oh, man. You can can be like triple, quadruple, you know, ice cream scoops mad. It can be, (laughs) yeah. So this is the what you have to look forward to when you're adventuring in the new Underdark, everybody, just so you know. Yeah, the Underdark was a bad place before. Now it's really, really, really But it sounds like a really fun campaign yeah. for DMs. Yeah, it was inspired by Alice in Wonderland, so it better be fun. Yeah. Uh, without giving too much away spoiler-wise, spoiler does this mean that the Demon Lords are working in concert in some fashion, or are they following individual agendas, or is it still under wraps? Like they're capable uh, they that. are. They do not collaborate. They do not play nice with each other under any circumstances. They are not collaborating whatsoever. In fact, they are so kind of shell-shocked by being here that they're kind of going off and doing just all kinds of random crazy stuff. Some of them are a bit more organized than others. Um, Demogorgon is of two minds. Uh, he can't. <laughs> yeah, he can't make up his mind what to do. He's arguing with himself the whole time he's terrorizing the Underdark. Uh, whereas Orcus lands in the middle of a Mind Flayer enclave, which has just lost its elder brain and reanimates it from the dead. Um, spoiler. Spoiler. Uh-oh. That's a good spoiler. I like it. Yeah. Mind flares and orcas, not good. Elder brains not are cool. Not good. Yeah. <laughs> um, Do you have a favorite demon lord? I'm a I'm a big fan of Demogorgon, but I also like Zagatmoy a great you deal. You do. I do. I know she's awesome. She's and her story is so delicious in this one. Oh my now God. the only demon lord you will not meet in this story is Lolf, and I won't tell you why. I also love her. Yeah. So, and I love Tiamat. So wait a minute, you love the ladies? I do. That's what I'm hearing? I love the strong ladies. <laughs> the strong, really evil ladies. Yes. Or just really crazy. Strong like, role models. I'm not, I'm not sure how like evil Zuckmoy is. I mean, yeah, she's a demon lord, whatever. Yeah. But she's just nuts. Kind of like her. <laughs> so veering away from D&D just a bit, we talked, I think it was off the air briefly, about uh, your influences of long-form storytelling, uh, storylines that take place in other media. Are, are there certain examples that you've been uh, enjoying, uh, digesting inspired lately, by. inspired by lately, whether book series or TV series or anything else? Do you even have time to read books and watch TV? <laughs> well, I, d- I don't have a TV. Um, I gave up my TV because I hadn't turned it on for a year and a half. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, so I've been pretty busy. How do you um, watch all those TV shows you were talking about? That. Netflix. Netflix. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm actually culturally behind most of most other D&D players in terms of their TV show watching and whatnot. But pretty much any serialized drama serve is, is for me uh, fodder, both in terms of how, how to structure stories, how to play out stories over periods of time, how to tell a, how to how to bury an arc under personal character stories. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many many life lessons there, and I've written a number of articles over the years talking about my fascination with serialized television shows and how they've inspired my campaigns. Um, with the stories that we're telling here, these story seasons that we're creating with Fifth Edition, each one is its own discrete thing, so that you can kind of interact with it and enjoy it for what it is. Uh, but they do all sort of connect to each other, either through D&D's past or through things you're going to see in the future. 
so that, um, and I mean, it's, it's a bit of a spoiler, but I've said it before. Every now and again, when we talk to Chris Perkins, he gets a little too excited and reveals too much information about things we're just not ready to tell you. Right now is one of those times. So instead of listening to what Chris Perkins is telling you, you're going to hear some soft, soothing music. Wasn't that relaxing? And now back to things we can talk about. That kind of thing tantalizes. It, it excites people. It gives them hints or clues. So when you're looking at Out of the Abyss, you can kind of see glimmers of maybe a roadmap to the future. And that's all part of thinking of these stories as story seasons. Mm. That you could, even though they are isolated from one another, there are ways and tethers to link them together into one cohesive, huge monster thing. And that will be even more gratifying for the people who play them all. That should be awesome. And just so I know, we're going to get questions about this after this. Uh, if you could imagine a cool or iconic monster or thing that's happened in D&D, the answer is yes. We want to build some kind of story around that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so someti- that- sometimes the story begins with a monster. Sometimes it begins with a location. Sometimes it begins with a mood or a concept. Uh, like, for instance... Um, a corporate merger. <laughs> and that's all we're saying about that. <laughs> How did, so what was the genesis for Rage of Demons? Uh, that, so that story was born, uh, it started, actually, it started with location. Um, I, was, I was told that we wanted to do an Underdark story mm-hmm. um, and, to, and to really make the Underdark a place of great peril and wonder. So what I did with that story, in order to get myself into the mood of telling an underdark story in the Forgotten Realms, I went back and I read Exile, mm-hmm. which is the Dritzt novel about Dritzt's first ascent to the surface. Basically, his escape from his flight from Menzo Baranzan um, to the surface. And as I was reading the novel, I realized he's meeting like a gnome who's got hammers for hands, and a peck, which is like this earth creature that's been polymorphed into a hook horror. Yeah. And he encounters this crazy mage who lives in a Darren's instant fortress. And I realized these characters are also wacky and crazy. This reminds me of Alice in Wonderland, like the caterpillar and the dormouse and the Cheshire cat. And I'm thinking, oh my God, Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> it's perfect. Because, you know, Alice goes down a rabbit hole mm-hmm. and she enters this weird, wonderful, whimsical domain full of insane creatures. And she's trying to get out. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the same story. So I called Bob and I said, Bob, is ex- was Exile inspired by Alice in Wonderland? And he said, no. <laughs> <laughs> but now that you mention it, it kind of is the same story. And I'm like, okay, we're going to tell an understory with Alice in Wonderland and we're going to fill it with crazy characters. It wasn't until we had some meetings and conversations and roundtables that we, we were thinking, okay, uh, we got drow, but we did drow a lot in 2012. So right. what are we going to focus on who, who else can the Underdark can we focus on? Mind Flayers, maybe? Kuatoa, Whatever. And then, um, I don't know who suggested it, but somebody suggested that, uh, somebody suggested maybe we do something with Lolf. Mm-hmm. And we talked about Lolf. Well, she's always seems to be at the fore 
when we talk about underdog stories. And then a light bulb went off, and I just thought, what if we just did all the demon lords? You know, no big deal. What if we took all of the I horrible mean, things of these chaotic creatures and just yeah, threw them if, in? If the underdark is going to be the worst place we can send characters, the most dangerous place on Earth, nothing says most dangerous place on Earth like all the demon lords. <laughs> and we had done, in previous editions, we had done adventures around a single demon lord, and I really wanted to get away from that. So mm -hmm. the thought was, let's just bring them all in. Let's do the Legion of Doom in the Underdark. Uh, and that's what these guys ended up being. I love it. Yeah. I'm only going to ask one more question because I could talk to Chris all day. But one of the things we're doing for Rage of Demons is we are doing a live game at PAX. Yes, at PAX in the summertime. Terrifying. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so Utterly terrifying. Yeah, it'll be so... At Benaroya Hall. It it's going to be fantastic. It will be nighttime. I think it's uh, either 8 or yes. 9. Yes. Oh, on the Friday. Time time, baby. Yeah. So, at the end of the PAX so East sleepy. game, we learned that Omen's other... Oh, wait. Am I spoiling something? Have we learned this? Well, you learned that... Well, we knew that Omen had sisters. Yes, we knew that Omen had sisters. Yes. And apparently one of them We're is... We're speaking about Jerry Holkins' character, Omen Drawn, yeah. by the way, for those not in the know. Apparently one of them is involved in some kind of underdark shenanigans. Mm, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, I'm guessing we're going to be taking everybody to the Underdark to do some Rage of demons -y stuff for the live game? Yes. Yes. The Acquisitions Incorporated will be going into the night below. Uh, they will be armed to the teeth. Um, and uh, chances are high that they're going to run into a legendary dark elf ranger. May happen. <laughs> I, I'm gonna I'm gonna do one tiny spoiler too. So the guy who did the battle balloon, Matt. Matt Smith. Yeah. He's working on doing another thing, for this year. Yeah. But they, I think I, I don't know if I want to spoil more than that, but there'll be another cool thing. There'll be another cool acquisitions incorporated vehicle. <laughs> oh um, my gosh. And uh, people will be able to see that. Uh, they're also going to see uh, Matt's take on a Smirfeblin nice. enclave. Oh, that's awesome. Um, where a lot of the action happens. And there's a centerpiece that I won't spoil that's, yeah. that's glorious. We have a whole bunch of things that we could spoil that I'm yeah. excited about. But we'll, we'll, when we get closer, uh, I'm sure we'll get Chris on, or yeah. we'll, there'll be, we'll, we'll be articles or pictures. You will see all the stuff. So. And as, as typical with the PAX Prime games, uh, it'll be lots of pageantry. The stage will be decked out, and people will be in costumes. and um, Including. Including me. We will not no. be putting a mustache on Chris this year. Yeah, we made that decision. Okay, I didn't. I didn't want the porn stash on his, Chris. It's part in way his through, rider. Part way through. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I, 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 I'm very curious to see how my costume turns out this year. <laughs> Me too. So I'd like to get one more question. So in the Pax East game, there was a moment where you dropped a little bit of new of new cannon on what was going on in uh, Waterdeep. Yeah. <laughs> Every now and again, when we talk to Chris Perkins, he gets a little too excited and reveals too much information about things we're just not ready to tell you. Right now is one of those times, so instead of listening to what Chris Perkins is telling you, you're going to hear some soft, soothing music. Wasn't that relaxing? And now back to things we can talk about.
Um, I, <laughs> you, a- you, you, you uh, credit me with too much forethought on th- in this regard. <laughs> I, I have long given up trying to uh, plan in advance what transpires during these 99.9% improv live games. Yes. And that's something that I want to point out. After the PAX East game, there were some moments that just seemed so spot on as far as timing and, and comedy and humor on the table. And people kept going, it's like, that had to be staged. I was like, there was none of that no part that rehearsals. was staged. I don't, I don't talk to the guys beforehand. Um, we just go out on stage and shit happens. <laughs> well, and if, if, something, if something canonical comes out of that, it is purely by accident. <laughs> and I'll usually get you know threatened afterwards. It's, it's canon now. Yeah, so Once right. it happens at yeah. the game. Well, we're looking forward to the next PAX game for sure. And as Rage of Demons starts to unfold for gamers, uh, analog and digital, we'll be excited to see how everyone's games go. On behalf of everyone here, we thank you for your time, Mr. Perkins, and we will get you back to the pit. Yeah, it's over. Back to work. The the hole where we keep all the designers and developers and storytellers. Yes, mine is the deepest hole of all. Oh. Hmm. Hmm. And on that note. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. All right. Susan, Tom. Thank you so much for being here. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. I'm here with my work husband, Trevor Kidd. <laughs> Sorry, other actual husband who happens to be working with her, Bart. <laughs> Sorry, Trevor's doctor wife. Eh, it's fine. Everybody understands. It is. Well, we were just talking about work husbands and work wives. Tom has a work husband. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently. Apparently. It's Dan Jelen. He's the one that's been doing those awesome videos yep. that have been online. The painting videos. Yep. The Memoradon. And Susan Mars used to work here. Mm-hmm. Susan said that when she she came in, she feels like things we've changed a little. We're we're all you're like, all fancy. We're fancy now. We have a TV in the lobby, and it plays oh, things yeah. related to D and D. We have a TV in the lobby. Yeah. You have cushy chairs there now. With oh, like a glass table. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, and the digital. I spend so much in. time in our lobby. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> if you ever need a break, just go. Sit down in the lobby. I do. Susan was. I take a walk around the block when I need a break. Yeah. And Mitzi got a donut. Yeah, she, she was. She got a donut and she was all dressed up for the beach. Yeah. yeah. Ryan, did you notice Mitzi was dressed up when you came in today? You like that? Yeah. Ryan, who is the awesome guy behind all of the sound, is like, I'm not talking. <laughs> He's nodding I'm, I'm a ghost. and giving a thumbs up. Yeah. It's if, Mitzi, if, I, if I talk, I've broken my rules. Mitzi's wearing a yellow polka dot bikini, and she's dressed up for summer. I think she was on Twitter briefly. She was on Twitter, and she's on our Tumblr, there too. There You can check her out there. We, had a, we had a nice little uh, uh, lemonade stand day that Shelly helped run. Yep, celebrating summer. It was good times. Yeah. I wish summer would go away. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> I how know, I feel about summer. Okay. I moved up from Texas for a reason, people. Yeah, <laughs> the Seattle summer is a little hot for most of us. Do you like the heat, Susan? It's not bad where I am. We've got lots of trees. We're on the east side. Oh, oh, good You're in a glass building. Yeah. <laughs> Being at work is some of my best time, not because of the awesome people I work with, but because there's air conditioning. Yeah, there's air conditioning. We're all working a little longer now. And it's not that humid here. Like, I grew up on the East Coast, no. mm-hmm. and it was like swimming. So I know. I can't really complain. The humidity is not, not here, but it is like in the 90s. Yeah. That is not what we signed up for. At least not till August. Sometimes in August I might get that hot. But yeah. I just was at the East Coast, and rarely do I come back here, and it's hotter than yeah. when I was on the East Coast. I was happy to go to Vegas. 
at one point. <laughs> I mean, Vegas, okay, when I went, it was, really, it was really hot. But we might go to Vegas again. I'm like, oh, please. It'll be so exciting. Just to get some cooling off? Yes. That's weird. Very awesome. That's weird. But anyway, we brought the two of you together because you have a lot in common. Did you know this? This is actually a dating show. This is a horrible Why idea. Did you guys didn't married people. Exactly. <laughs> it's our new reality show. Talking about work husbands and work wives. No. Um, Susan, you um, were the the author behind two really wonderful D&D kids adventures. Nice. Monster Slayers, Heroes of Hesiod, and the latest Champions of the Element, which is an elemental ev- elemental evil themed Children's adventure. Anything with the word evil in it is automatically kid-friendly, as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And Tom, you have experience DMing for kids. You wrote a great article for us uh, for our behind-the-screens column, and people loved it immediately because I think people really are interested in learning more about how to DM for kids and how to to introduce kids to role-playing in general. So we thought, why not get the two of these, these guys together and let's talk about... D&D and kids and introducing new people into this wonderful category. So thank you for being here because you guys are also very busy people. Mm-hmm. Um, we like to start off by asking our guests the, our favorite question, which is about your history with D&D and how you were first introduced and how long you played. Susan, how about you? So I was introduced kind of two ways at once. One is that um, my when I was a kid, my dad played Eye of the Beholder, which it turns out was Forgotten Realms. But of course, I didn't know this at the time. And I couldn't spell or anything yet, but yet I was the biggest backseat gamer telling my dad what to do all the time. Nice. So eventually he got me um, my or, and my sister our own computer to play the game on, and we used to kind of co-play that for a long time, uh, which led to Forgotten Realms Unlimited Adventures, which or Fura, which was an amazing computer game that allowed you to build your own dungeons and adventures and everything. And I used to do that for all my friends. Uh, And then at the same time, uh, I always loved mythology and I loved monsters. I was a huge monster geek. And so I'd read every book I could at the library that had monsters in it. Um, But then one time in the bookstore, I found this book that was just filled with monsters and their lore and like all the stat information about them. And it turned out it was the Monstrous Manual from second edition. (laughs) And I read that. for, I read it cover to cover quite a, quite a few times and tried to draw all the monsters and put them in my free raw campaigns. And then I realized it was actually a game you could play with other people. <laughs> um, my parents were not so keen on, you know, their like eight-year-old daughter going out to the game store to meet random people to play with. <laughs> <laughs> Just so you know, everybody, that's not how we describe the experience when we send you out to stores. But <laughs> So, uh, well, what's, here's the funny thing is I start out with play by email, um, and then uh, eventually I wrote a research paper on why I should be allowed <laughs> I'm to. sorry. <laughs> when play, you were Play eight? by email and this you were older. eight. I'm like, I'm like boop, boop, doing this math. I'm like, wait, how old are you? I was, You're like. She's so apparently Do you even 14. have a license to drive? <laughs> She's 14. I was older by then. in college. I was older by then. I was okay. probably 10, 11 or so. Well, you wrote um, a research paper? I wrote a research paper on why I should. I researched all the different types of games. I'm still stuck on the, the fact that she had email at 10, and I was like 20. 21, maybe? Oh, I was playing Muds and stuff at 9. So <laughs> yeah, it's I'm on like, the same page as her. 
So yeah, so I um, on a research paper on why I should be allowed to play, uh, and they accepted this, and uh, then I was allowed I to play. No, <laughs> best parents ever. It's like, well, you have a very you have a very good argument. We're going to let you go play. It's like, yep. I had a scientist and a mathematician for parents, so okay. you know, if I have a rational <laughs> argument, I was usually allowed to do things. Um, so then I went to the local game store and I dropped off a note on their game board because they used to have that thing. It was a cork board that you like attach your note looking for game. Uh, and I got in my first game, which lasted two years and was one of my favorite experiences. Now, did you say on your note, I'm a 10-year-old girl and I'm looking for a game? <laughs> no, but I used, okay, this is the embarrassing part. In my research, I learned all the slang that the cool gamers use. And I, like, filled my little note with all the slang descri <laughs> describing, like, what I was looking for. It's like a personal Zed, but know. for gamers specifically. So it uses all these all the slang that even we wouldn't know at this point, probably. Oh, what kind of slang was it? Do you, do you remember any of it? Well, it was mainly just things like newbie and things like that, mm. but there were, like, it, it was really funny, and I remember getting, like, talking to, they call first, right? So you talk to them and everything, and then they talk to my parents. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, like, but, they're cool with this, right? Yeah, but we <laughs> went with, um, I went with a friend, so there was two of us, and it was a really great group. They were really devoted to having, it was 50% men, 50% women. Um, the age ranges were huge. There was, like, a geology teacher in our group, uh, someone who was in the Army, uh, and then two of us kids, and then like um, they had just graduated college. Uh, one of them was a pastry chef, the other was a social worker. Uh, it was really fun. It was a great, like, really diverse, fun group. So that's amazing. I was really lucky. Like, yeah. I could have gone way worse. And then after that, I tried to run games for my Girl Scout troop. <laughs> More D and D and Girl Scouts. You were a Girl Scout too. Oh yeah, ten years at least. Mm, yeah. Oh, all right. We have a, a guy for you to. Get in touch with. Yeah, it was actually running on the... Twitter. Oh, yeah. oh, you have? Oh, wait, I think he did tell me that that you guys got in touch. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. I think he mentioned it in the podcast. Did he? I think so. All right. It was either it was either during the he podcast was... or before or after. So. Yeah, he was very excited about your adventure. Yeah, he seems he seems like he's doing a great thing because I think that like at least when I was a Girl Scout, we were doing that so that we'd learn like you know survival and sword fighting and archery and you know making what happens if you end up going to one of these fantasy worlds. And you don't know how to make a freaking fire right. or like catch food. Like you are going to die. I love that. It's like when the crazy fantasy apocalypse happens and you get sucked in the fantasy realm, you need to be prepared. You do. This, this is a common thought at that age. <laughs> yeah. Narnia is real, man. Susan. When the fairies return, you yes. have to be ready. You would know. So you're also an author. Yes. You've written books for Wizards of the Coast. You've mm -hmm. written the Practical Guides. Practical Guide to Wizardry and Practical Guide to Fairies. And Practical Guide to Dragon Magic. And Dragon Magic. And the Fairy Locket, which and is a companion locket. to uh, Practical Guide to we Fairies. We did a Dragon one and a Dragon Magic one? How did and I miss the Dragon Magic one? And a Dragon Rider one. Yeah. That one I knew. I didn't. Yeah. So um, would you, and you've also, you have a, a novel, or is it a trilogy at this point? Um, well, it would be a quartet, but it's a novel at the moment. Okay. <laughs> that, that's unrelated to D&D, &D, but it, is it fantasy? Uh, no, it's actually horror sci-fi, and it's not for kids. Mm -hmm. <laughs> not so. for kids. Super not for kids. Okay, well, hopefully <laughs> we get to see this one day. But as a writer who grew up playing uh, role-playing games, would you say that, that this has helped shape you as a writer or has given you any tips for building stories and plot hooks and character building? So, yeah, playing D&D &D makes you think about how it gives you empathy it makes you think about how other people think and so like when you're designing villains for your campaign or for uh, a book it really makes you think about why they did the actions they did because they have to be kind of defensible um, and it makes you think about how because in a game each player is a hero and they should each have their own story arc if the story doesn't serve them they're not going to feel 
or if it serves only one player in the group and like ignores the rest, they're not going to feel fulfilled. And it's the same thing in a book when you're doing every character should have their own character arc. So it's really helpful in terms of thinking about everyone as an individual and how they come together to form a story. How like one person's insignificant decisions can lead to the problem that all of a sudden they're all facing. Mm-hmm. All right, Tom. So here's the deal. Yep. She had a really good introduction. I know. Like and and, and Shelly, Shelly kept feeding it too. So Susan, sure. Susan has she's impressive. So I, I want you to I want you to be as impressive, even if it means making things up. And Trevor, you have sure. to feed it. You have to feed yeah, it. Yeah, and I'll be like, didn't you kill a dragon once? I did. That's in real I, life? That D&D is based on me. <laughs> uh, my life as a dragon slayer. Uh, no, I just realized I'm significantly older than Susan because my introduction was when I was probably junior high and my D&D books were first edition, not because they were collector's editions. <laughs> not because you found them in the back not of some because I found them. No, um, I, I was actually in uh, Boy Scouts. I was, oh. was on a camping trip, and my friends were talking about this game, this fantasy game and with elves and dwarves, and I was super intrigued by it. They were describing it, and uh, when I got home from that trip, I ended up trying to replicate what they had described, so I made my own version of D&D with like six-sided dice for a week, oh, made my brother play the cutest thing ever. until I could get to the bookstore and bought the basic box set. So you knew what you were looking for when you went? Oh yeah, I knew the game, it okay. just was a matter of time until I could get to the store, but in the meantime, I just created my own you little... You just couldn't wait. You I could couldn't not wait. wait to get to the store, like I'm just gonna make it up. It was just purely all the D6 system, you know, <laughs> roll a D6 and decide, oh, I think that's high. That's you, awesome. You hit it. <laughs> it uh, so then uh, started playing since then on and off, played pretty actively through like high school and then we started playing again after college. So I've played in a number of different campaigns. Most of the time I've generally played in first edition games. So I, I liked it because it was a, I always felt like my philosophy as a DM was don't let the rules get in the way of a good story. Mm-hmm. So first edition and like I, I actually, played so much that I almost memorized all the different <laughs> charts. So I knew if like you're a cleric and you do a roll, I'm going 16, uh, I think you'll hit it. You know, Cause it's just chart after chart. And right. I just got to where you sort of vaguely knew where things were. So one of the reasons I really liked uh, fifth edition was it felt like I could still run it like first and it just cleaned up a lot of things, right? You didn't have seven tables for combat. You just had the one number. And it seemed like also a good point to uh, think about introducing it to kids or other people because it was much more accessible than uh, some of the other editions and because I felt like I could run it fairly rules light, more story on, story or, oriented. Um, I kind of just trailed off there. <laughs> Trevor, you, well, you suck at feeding. I, I do, I, I do. Know, Trevor, I thought feeding. you were going to keep going. The I ran feeding. out of steam. I'm horrible. <laughs> I'm actually the worst host ever. Um, <laughs> so how old were you when you ran that first game? I was probably eighth grade. And did you, from then on, did you DM more or did you play more? Is it kind of switch off and on? Or? So I DM'd more and it, uh, I had a regular group, but these guys were um, like sociopaths. And they spent. <laughs> in, in real life or in the fantasy? A little bit of both. So okay. they wanted to kill everything, is what you're saying. And generally that involved the other party members more than the monsters. Oh. I, have, I have friends in a gaming group that are constantly like, like that. Like actively went after each other? Oh yeah. This is they, what I was talking about earlier. <laughs> they, they they actively did. So I ended up uh, sort of leaving that group behind and, went and started playing with either a couple of friends or my brother and it got to the point where I wanted to play too and it was usually just me and him. 
So I went to the random tables at the back of the first edition Dungeon Master's Guide so I could just roll the dice and I didn't know what was going to happen. So I could sort of play along uh, as we... Yeah. And then we would just try to then later explain these random situations like you're in a 10 foot 10 corridor and you encounter a storm giant. We're like, <laughs> what's it doing here? And we just were picturing it's really it just uncomfortable. Crawling along is like, okay, you know, so we just would go with it and just laugh at the random nature of it. Which is kind of the beauty of the game. Like you I, oh, you always hear stories like when you know people are starting off and they don't really know all the rules, so they just kind of make things <laughs> up. But that's like what the fun of it is. But I'm impressed that you were intuitive enough at that age as a dungeon master to realize less focus on the rules, more focus on the story. We had a lot of big story arcs. And then later on, I started to just make big arcs with characters that would recur. Like I did a lot of the comic book villains where oh, characters would, good. I intentionally would not let them kill certain characters or other <laughs> ones would die and I would bring them back in horrible and bizarre ways. For them. I would just <laughs> be like, why is he still here? That's like, the best. Like now he's a lich. That's I'm, the dungeon master. No, we, we had a, a orc, and I just named him Borax. And they ended up killing him, and they were happy they decapitated him. And then, like, two adventures later, he showed up reanimated, but they put his head on an ogre body. So he just had this <laughs> tiny little head. <laughs> nice. This does sound like a comic villain. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So little, little kid you comes back from this camping trip with Boy Scouts, mm -hmm. and it's like, okay, I'm going to make up a game. Yep. So that segues into, what do you do for us now, Tom? What do you do at Wizards of the Coast? Oh, yeah, good question, Trevor. Wow, what do I do? Um, <laughs> it might have something to do with making games, people. So uh, I've worked on uh, several of our digital games. The one I liked the most was uh, Lords of Waterdeep for iOS. But I've had a hand in several of our other mobile games. Uh, recently did some work on the Temple of Elemental Evil board game. Yeah, uh, I like you, that one. My main role is uh, I'm a canary in a coal mine. When I start having fun, they look at me and go, that system is broken. Oh. <laughs> so, Could, Because you found a way to just win in a horrible, horrible way, is that what it is? No, I just find like ways that I think are amusing. Not like I'm not like um, really focused on breaking numbers. I just sort of find things that like, hey, this seemed like it really felt fun. This was really kind of cool. It's the fun, and then we kill it. And they do. Well, I remember. <laughs> in a, I remember doing something early on in fifth edition where I was like, this wizard's awesome. Look how he can do this thing. And 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 Jeremy just looked at me and went, that's broken. Oh. <laughs> I was like, but it was so much fun. Aww. Good times. There's still plenty of fun. Well, yeah. it's still fun. Yeah. I still enjoy the system quite a bit. And uh, I, my brother is starting to play with his kids as well right now. Really? So we were talking about last week and I took him the starter set because he was just using first edition. I'm like, no, no, you should just try the starter set. So he's really excited about doing that as well. So I got a couple of stories of his kids as well. So that's a good segue to, we do want to talk about where you guys think the best place to begin is. And Tom, for you and your, your article, you, you started with the starter set. Yeah, uh, mostly because I had run it before, was really familiar with it, and felt like it would be easy to help manage, wrangle the other kids because yeah. I wouldn't have to be spending as much time, what's going to happen next, what's going on with the adventure. I was able to sort of just improvise a little bit better because I had played it a couple times. And how old, remind me how old the group was. It was parents the, and kids. I had a couple dads, like two dads played, and the other dads just sort of you know, went off to the other room with, uh, to go play video games <laughs> with the kids. <laughs> but I had, uh, the youngest was second grade, and then the oldest was sixth grade. Okay. As far as the kid range. It was about, ended up with about seven people playing oh, actively. Nice. And they were all new to D&D? &D? 
all of them were new, and we, we actually ran two sessions. The first one got them introduced, and then I did a second session where we brought in some new players and just had them meet up halfway there. Okay. Is there anything differently you do when you're having younger kids? Like, is there something you do to prepare them differently than you would do to prepare the, to prepare other people? Well, what I did is, since I knew they were all new, I, I went with pre-gens, but I, add, I asked them, you know, what do you want to play? Like, how do you want to play? Do you want to have, like, a sword, be up close fighting? Do you want to be kind of sneaky? You know, do you want to cast spells? So I, and I sort of said, think about characters like that, and then they sort of picked their play style. And I just gave them the pre-gen and just sort of focused on here's the number when I ask you to roll to hit, look at this number, look at this number. So we just very briefly went over the stats. And, mm -hmm. and so I didn't really dwell on your strength, whatever. It's like, here's your attack score. This is what you're going to roll mm -hmm. to get attacked. And this is your number if you get hit gotcha. you know, for your armor class. Huh? Uh, and then the other thing was to try to get them into the game as quickly as possible because I was afraid I would lose their attention if they were rolling up characters. And I was right. trying to help because it would take like an hour to try to get seven people you know, managing all their characters. Yeah. So I was like, we'll just do pre-gens because we can get into the game quickly. Yep, makes sense. Susan, you, you have some, some playing with kids experience, obviously. Should we, should we talk to you about some of your first experiences with kids? Yeah, um, I was just thinking one of the funniest thing about like creating characters, like that was my favorite thing to do as a kid. I would just create thousands of them. I had like a binder of kids, <laughs> <laughs> like characters as a kid. Right? Binders of kids? <laughs> yeah. <Whoa. laughs> well, they, obviously they were all my age there because, we well, one or two years older because they were cool. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think that it really depends on the kid. Like, I think um, I've heard from a lot of parents who use the practical guides, actually, because um, that's similar to the monster manuals, only you can, like, appreciate them younger um, than the monster manuals, which have a little bit more elevated language. And, like, there are kids still love, I mean, I know some three-year-olds who love the monster manuals. Uh -huh. uh, it's just that the language is a little more difficult and it's smaller type and everything. Uh, and the focus is not on material that appeals to them as much as say something made directly to appeal to them. Um, I've also, also, obviously I've heard teachers, librarians, parents say that the Monster Slayer series of Hesiod um, has been a really good introduction for them, um, for their kids, mainly because it's so fast and there's no rules to read really. Mm -hmm. uh, there's like a page of rules and it's, it's supposed to be pretty intuitive learning. Mm -hmm. I've heard a lot of people say dungeon board game uh, yeah. is amazing for kids, especially if you fudge it a little bit. Um, and I've had kids come up to me and tell me that Munchkin has actually got their kids. I love that game. Got them into D&D um, because it was like that. so card-based and it had the spirit of D&D and then they went on to play campaigns. And oh, so cool. they actually recommended it for other kids. Um, and then, so I have a story about my friend who is a Forgotten Realms author, Erin uh, M. Evans. Um, oh, we know her. <laughs> know. Who is this? Who's this lady? I don't, I don't know who we're talking about. So she's in my fifth edition campaign, and she's been in my. I started the campaign during the playtest. So what? It's been going almost two years now, which is just nuts. Wow. Um, same people. Same people. And so she's. Uh, she has a son, um, tiny Mister I, who, <laughs> who was like two years old uh, when we started, and she had to explain to him where she was going all these Friday nights, and so she'd tell him the kids-friendly version of our adventures. Um, he'd give her advice. And then eventually, oh, he just really, really wanted to play. And so she started um, telling him, like, basically doing D&D. He'd say, let's play D&D. &D. And so she'd, like, she helped him make a character. Um, and then 
they uh, go through like these scenarios. It's completely story based where it's like, and it, sometimes it'll be the whole time in a tavern where it's like talking about eating all the different food. And then sometimes <laughs> it'll be like trying to recover something from a wizard that the wizard need like then like throws on the ceiling for no reason and makes him laugh or whatever. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he loves this so much. I'm not, I'm not doing a great job telling the inter- incredibly entertaining stories that a three-year-old can come up with, uh, <laughs> with uh, Aaron. <laughs> um, but he started DMing. Oh so, my god, that is so cool. <laughs> I think, we need to get him I on think the I, podcast. I think I saw Erin post about this it in, is in, in, in her blog or Facebook page recently no. where he was DMing all of you. Is that what happened? No, for all of you? he was DMing yeah. for her. Okay. Um, but it's it's funny because he does like he did it in front of all of us oh. because we had like a uh, we had a holiday slash like anniversary party for our game, mm-hmm. and so um, and he really wanted to play because we were gonna play D and D after the like brief like party part, and so he started like just deciding that he was going to DM a game. <laughs> it was nice. really awesome. So I think that's a great way because like. And, and he will probably be able to go to straight up D&D pretty early because he's been immersed in the culture from such a young age. And I think that talking, letting your kids watch your game, letting them, you know, telling them about it, letting them get involved at whatever speed they want to is probably a great way to get them interested and excited and motivated to play. It's always awesome when I see kids telling stories, yeah. like, and through D&D even better. But, like, when, they're just, when they get to the point where they're like, I'm going to read this book and read the book means they just make stuff up and yeah. they're, they're telling you a story and you're like, that's not what's in the book, but that's pretty awesome. <laughs> yes. um, so if, if, if watching someone do that with D&D would be pretty amazing. Yeah, getting them invested in the story immediately. I love the idea of like having them help yeah. be a DM. Like Tom, your daughter likes to co-DM for you. She does. She, uh, you know, whenever we have people over, she's very much like wants to heard the people, like, make sure they're doing whatever they're supposed to do, you know. Oh, so so for her, like, co-DMing was perfect, right, because she was able to sort of observe what everybody was doing and sort of, you know, help me out. I'm like, okay, go ahead and make these dice rolls or what should we do here? Nice. So, and she just, but she, she didn't want to play, which was, I was surprised. I thought she'd want to play, but it might have been just because it was all boys, really. Right. And I think she was like, well, I'll just hang out here with dad at it's, the table. It's a matter of time. From what you were saying before, she's very into other board games? She is. She's, she's actually less into video games, more into, I think, the games from a social standpoint. Mm-hmm. So she loves being able to play games with me, like board games. Yeah. And uh, she doesn't, she seems fine. You know, some of her favorite games are um, Wrath of a Shardalon, like I was saying, because I think they can see the miniatures. They're on the board. My son always runs off when he plays and then starts whining for help because he ran far away from the rest of us. <laughs> and he's like, oh, help me. Uh, she just recently asked me to help her build a magic deck. Oh, we, yeah. We, we played a, our first game. So, and How she, old she, is she again? She will be eight in August. Wow. Just finished second grade. So she's very much interested in that, and she's got a very artistic bent, so she's very much into drawing, and I think she likes a lot of that aspect is what... In, she likes when we play these games as it helps feed her imagination. You know what she's going to be when she grows up? Trouble? Susan. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so she yes. A lot like yes. yes is the answer to that question. <laughs> similar age is similar for Chloe. Yes. Yeah. I think we see her future and it's very, very bright. <laughs> so um, Susan, with the, the two kid-friendly adventures that you've written, the Heroes of Hesiod and the um, Champions of the Elements, if somebody is interested in creating their own campaign or their own adventure for kids, is there particular tips that you have for success in doing that? Do you, I mean, you, you probably are writing a little bit different than if than for your 
fifth edition campaign you're running for your adult friends, I'm imagining. Yeah, though a lot of the stuff, a lot of the bones are similar, right? So one thing is, like, um, obviously the Monster Slayers is kind of a combat-based module. Uh, and so a lot of it's about making combat interesting. And in, in combat, I think variety is super important. So, like, um, I try and have some that are interesting, uh, do cool things when you hit them, some that do cool things when they hit you, some that are, like, movement-based, um, and some that affect player action or interaction. And so, like, they should never just do damage or... Oh my god, heaven forfend, make you lose a turn. Like, that's really boring, right? It's <laughs> awful. And then also varying their stat block to make each character have something they're good at attacking. Um, like some <clears throat> high AC, low hit point, and vice versa, and then some more in the middle. Um, and then also, like, I think it's really important to make sure that not, the fight doesn't go on too long. So you want to make sure that they don't last more than three rounds on average, and you're not counting critical hits, which hopefully will happen, but I have seen some terrible rolling. Uh, <laughs> so you have to... And you have to be careful about that. And also, um, try and reward good player behavior. Um, so, like, and, and try and make sure there's not instances that are just going to be disappointing. Like, always make things yep. fun. So, for instance, the druid, who's most likely to miss, gets a special attack whenever they miss. And the barbarian, who's most likely to get hit, gets a special attack whenever she's hit. This means the barbarian's likely to stay in combat, which everyone needs because she has the most hit points. Ah, yeah. Um, and, you know, she really enjoys getting hit because she gets to push the monster back, that's and that's fun. just super fun. Um, and then the um, druid doesn't feel so bad about uh, missing all the time because if they miss, they get their special ability to trigger. Um, the other thing is uh, I think it's really important to make sure that you have two levels to the game, and that's going to make it, like, span age ranges. Mm -hmm. So um, I try and made it so, make it so that like all the players and have synergy and actually can do some really clever tactics if they work together and like accomplish things very fast. But you don't need it to enjoy the game. You can just enjoy you know getting hit and pushing things back and then like you know using your other special ability to like do splash damage to two. Or you could like you know work together and do it even better. That gives it levels. Um, oh, description. Biggest thing I, I learned just running games for kids is the grosser and funnier you make it, the more fun it is often. Oh, so. you agree, Tom? Is that true? Yeah, definitely the, the funny parts where you describe what happens and they can sort of picture it and they can laugh yeah. or, or get into it much more. Because it's, again, it's theater of the mind, right? right? So the more you can give them to grab onto, to imagine and picture, the more engaged they seem to be. They just loved it when the bullet swallowed them in the first one because <laughs> really? it's so gross and they're covered in saliva when they get spit out and like they just loved that and it was so unexpected because in what game do you get swallowed by something? Hungry, yeah. hungry hippo. Right. Well, you you <laughs> don't. If you're a pellet. If true. you're a pellet. So yeah. So I think they liked kind of the reversal and it's not instant death. Obviously, they can just do automatic hits and or they don't tickle it. Die at all though, right? No, they. Um, tickle it. I love that. You yeah. can tickle it to get spit out, or you can mm -hmm. uh, just do automatic damage, and they don't die. And in fact that's one of the changes I made with Champions of the Elements is that monsters don't die either. Um, that was part of the, I mean, like, a lot of kids really enjoy stabbing things, but a lot of parents don't necessarily want their kids to enjoy stabbing things. Um, and also, some kids, if the art is super cute, like, they want to take adopt them as pets right. and not kill them. And I found, in particular, this age group, at least in my experience, has been so empathetic that it's, like, I have to make sure that it's, it's more of a defeating them and so, and it's also fun, like, or funny to see something that's really scary 
um, all of a sudden be like abashed as after you've defeated right. it or something. Yeah. So you can make it, you can play with it. <laughs> I love that. You, I know. you were talking about the empathy. My brother was describing how he's running it mostly for his, his, da his daughter, who's like sixth grade, and his son, who's like fourth grade. And his son has all this empathy, like they'll sneak up on orcs. And his son's like, well, maybe we should talk to them. Yeah. And, and, and my brother's trying to explain, they're just orcs, you're supposed to kill them. He goes, but we don't know what they're doing. He's like, fine, you can talk to them. So he had him do like a charisma roll, and of course it's awful, right? So the orcs yeah. want to attack him, and they finally end up defeating him, and one's getting away. And he's like, you should do something. And, you know, my nephew's like, maybe we should just try to capture him, you know? Aww. And my brother's like, they're just orcs. Just kill them. Just Aww. get it over with. They can be a good beholder. Yeah, exactly. I totally heard Going that. Going to train him. He'll be my pet beholder. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of some of that stuff, Tom, Susan mentioned uh, changing the game so that missing had some positive stuff, right? And your, in uh, your article, you mentioned how you turned the bad dice rolls into kind of comedic moments. Um, and I know that when I miss a lot of the table, I get grumpy. I can only assume that when a little kid misses a lot of the table, they probably uh, get about as grumpy as I do, because uh, that's my, my mentality. <laughs> um, so, yeah, well, how does that change the game? What kind of things did you do? Well, usually it'd be much more descriptions, right? Like if you miss, it would be like, you know, you swing at the goblin and just at the last second he sort of ducks and it just glances off his shield or something like that. But then when they want to do something bigger or it, that's a failure is a little more spectacular. I'm a huge fan of critical hits and critical misses. Mm -hmm. So uh, at one point, I think one of the dads, they're about like 30 feet up on a ledge. They, they this elaborate plan to sneak up on these goblins. And he decided he wanted to fight with his sword, but he was 30 feet up. So he's like, I'm gonna jump onto the goblin. <laughs> I'm like, okay, make a roll. And he rolls like a two. So I'm like, you miss, but I'll tell you what, you get a chance to see if you can sort of maintain your balance. Rolls like another two. I'm like, okay, you're just laying on the ground. This goblin's right above you. And then he swings, but you know, you roll out of the way. Then one of the kids is like, well, I'm going down to help. Okay, roll. And he actually lands on the goblin. I'm like, well, the goblin was over the guy. Roll to see <laughs> if you can get out of the way. And he fails. So not only does he hit the goblin, they both crash down on the prone <laughs> player. And it does more damage than the goblin would have done if it just hit him. <laughs> and I, I tell them that. I'm like, oh, you take, you know, 10 points instead of like six. And they just thought it was the funniest <laughs> thing that by helping, they did more damage to the guy That's than funny. if they just left him alone. So we just sort of played up the sort of failure wackiness. So what I'm hearing is that. let them beat up their dads. And it's yeah. hilarious. And it's funny. Yes, it is Life hilarious. Right there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. Yes. Well, this is, I mean, we could talk about this. Yeah. Endlessly. I went off script the entire time there, so. <laughs> <laughs> but there's so much to talk about, but um, we we are running out of time, unfortunately. And but the two of you have a lot to say. I know, Susan, you're you've got campaigns running, and you're writing, you're blogging about your campaign, or yeah, I'm blogging about with DM tips. Okay, for adult games. But so where can people uh, find your blog yeah. when they want to? SusanJMorris.com. And the DM stuff is susanjmorris.com slash DM. It's really complicated, people. I'm not sure you'll be able to remember that. I hope you can yeah, write it down. Um, and hopefully we get to read your novel really soon. Oh, that would be awesome. <laughs> and then, Tom, where can we find you other than Wizards of the Coast? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, at okay. Kidanubis. Uh, it's probably the best place for How do you spell that? that? Uh, K-I-D-A-N-U-B-I-S. Okay. He is also a regular in our live stream, like, tabletop yep. play. So. Yeah. Or, or look on the YouTubes. You yeah. can, you we have can a lot of him me. on the YouTubes. He's quite entertaining and dapper. I think you need to write more for us, though, about the 
kids in DM. I would like to. I, I have kids that want to keep playing, so uh, I've just got to get crazy summer schedule with kids, and I'll have another event scheduled to continue on. Yeah, I would think that parents now are like, please play D&D with my child <laughs> for six hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, we might be able to no, without school, right? They can yes. stay up later. Yes. Well, so when are you going to get Quinn playing D&D, Shelley? Any second now. Soon. Any He'll second. be two in a, like a week, so yeah, I think he's 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 in the the right window. He's going to start DMing you and Bart, and it'll be perfect. He kind of is our dungeon master. <laughs> <laughs> he does tell us what to do. Naturals. No, yes, totally, totally. It's in his blood. Well, yes, thank you both for joining us, and we will be hearing from you soon, I'm sure, at least Susan and Tom will have to have him on another stream so yep. we can get everybody's... everybody's uh, Susan, too. And look on our website. Download um, Susan's Adventures for Kids. Yep, definitely. Yep. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. As always, thanks for listening to the Dungeons & Dragons podcast. You can download the podcast from the D&D website, DungeonsAndDragons.com, under the media section, or subscribe directly from iTunes. <laughs>